For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last last worked only one hour they said and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day but he answered one of them friend I am not being unfair to you didn't you agree to work for a denarius take your pay and go I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money or are you envious because I am generous So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Okay, let me lead us in prayer. Fathers, we do each Wednesday, we come uh, to you now, and thank you for the food that you provided for us. It's a reminder that we are completely and totally dependent uh, upon you for everything, for life, for sustenance. It also, the food also reminds us that you do answer prayer, that we pray, give us each day our daily bread. It reminds us that you've, Uh, care for us, uh, care for us in your generosity uh, to supply our needs, and we thank you for that. It also reminds us that there are many people in the world today without bread, and we ask that you would meet their needs and and provide for them. We pray also that you would provide for us spiritual bread now from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I... uh, was in college one summer I served with Campus Crusade for Christ International on a beach project and I was on a work crew in Panama City Beach at a resort area Colon Beach Resort at that time and uh, I think most of that if not all of it's been torn down Uh, but I I worked for a company that was owned by a couple of brothers their father in the early 1900s had ridden a bicycle down to the panhandle of Florida and as you know <clears throat> air conditioning is what put Florida on the map until then people didn't want to go to Florida basically especially not in the summer anyway and he uh, collected bottles when you had uh, bottles with deposits on them and he saved up money he worked all sorts of odd jobs and he began to purchase property beach front property and there was nothing there at Panama City Beach and so he bought <clears throat> along what became Long Beach Resort and now his widow lived in a, a house that we would go and I was, I was on a maintenance crew we'd mow mow the grass and tend to the grounds and among other things we did and these two brothers ran the company and the third brother ran our maintenance crew 
he had been <clears throat> cut out of the will. And so they were living, in his mind, lives of luxury, and he was down doing the grunt work with hourly paid work, workers like me. And when he found out we were a, with a Christian group, Campus Crusade for Christ, that's kind of a dead giveaway, he would come by and say, Matthew 2016. What do you think he meant by that? The last will be first, and the first will be last. And he would, he would jerk that out of context and say, they cut me out in this life, but you know what's going to happen up there? I'm going to get my due, and my highfalutin brothers, they're not going to have anything. Now, that has nothing to do with this passage. But he knew that reference, and maybe someone else here knows that reference that has nothing to do with that. <clears throat> but that was, I guess, maybe the one verse in Scripture he knew. Let me tell you about another man. Uh, around 125 years ago, 135 years ago, <clears throat> there was a man in England who went to, missionary, uh, went to Africa as uh, not only a missionary, but an explorer and a map maker and a scientist. His name was David Livingston. And so he left England. He went to Africa, which at that time, the interior part of Africa was <clears throat> totally unknown to the outside world. Uh, it, was, it was very mysterious, just people didn't know. Here was this huge continent, and we knew things about the coastal area, but not the interior of Africa. Uh, a few years passed, and <clears throat> people had not heard from Livingston, excuse me. <clears throat> and so a newspaper man from the U.S. was sent to go to Africa to find him. And he was a typical newspaper man and that he was uh, bottom line, he was an unbeliever, he was looking for a story, and he was very self-centered and self-promoting. And his name was Henry Stanley. I read a 600-page book about, written by Henry Stanley on how he found David Livingston. So he goes and he ultimately does find Livingston after this extensive searching into the interior of Africa, and he is overcome and totally impressed with the character of David Livingston, with the fruit of his work, with his intelligence, and with his Christian commitment. And he's the guy that when he met Livingston, basically said, uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume, not like the movie portrayed it from what I read, uh, but he's the guy that said that when he met him. David Livingston led Henry Stanley to Christ. And then Livingston died two years later. Henry Stanley, oddly enough, decided to stay there after he came back and told his story about Livingston. He went back to carry on the work, to carry on the work in Africa. Um, <clears throat> he comes to a place, to a tribe called the Bugandans. And he meets a man who is their leader named King Mutesa. And Stanley opened a Bible, and he began to talk to King Mutesa about the Bible. And he responded, well, we have another holy book. And he pulled out a copy of the Koran. The king did. The Muslims, of course, had already been there. <clears throat> and he said, um, King Mutesa said to Henry Stanley, which one is true? And Stanley said, I'll 
teach you which one is true. And the man said, I want other people to come and teach us as well. So Henry Stanley writes an article, and he sends it back to England. And as a result of that article that was an appeal for missionaries and Bible teachers to come into the interior of Africa, as a result of that, some Anglicans back in England get some money together and send a Scottish Presbyterian down to Africa by the name of Alexander McKay. And he came to Africa. He travels there with six other people to do mission work. Two of those people died in, in, the, in the trip, during the trip. Two more died once they were there. They not only were attacked by people, they primarily had to suffer with fever. And McKay sends word back, and he says, we need more people to come. But I want to tell you when you come, you are going to die. They said that based on the diseases. And what happened, in fact, here's exactly what he wrote. Alexander McKay said, when you come, plan to stay because you probably won't go back. And it's not because it will be such a wonderful climate you'll want to retire here. He said you'll die. Missionaries came. And you know what they packed their belongings in? Coffins. They packed their belongings in coffins to go to the interior of Africa. Now, when I read things like that, and I've read that from several, several sources, the, by the way, the average lifespan was two years. Once you got there, you could be expected to live two years. <clears throat> I think, Lord, why do you, re, why do you uh, not protect those? And why do you not seem to reward those who serve you like those people when, in many cases, you seem to give the ungodly long lives and relatively easy lives as well? And when I think thoughts like that, I go back to this parable in Matthew chapter, chapter uh, 20. Now, the essential elements of this parable could be true today um, that all of us can relate to. But the context is uh, Jesus has just encountered a uh, rich young man. He's the one he told him to sell all he possessed and come and follow him. Sell all he possessed, give it to the poor and follow me. And Peter, after hearing, seeing that encounter between Jesus and the man we call the rich young ruler, Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Peter was still thinking on some degree that we earn God's merit. Um, he's adding up the merit points. What do we have to look forward to? Look, we have done what you just told this rich young man to do, but he chose not to do so. Now, Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for the way he's thinking uh, about this merit mentality. Instead, he assures him in the verses that come before this that there will be reward for Jesus' disciples. Uh, in fact, he describes that reward as a hundred times as much. He's telling us, Jesus is telling us that the kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, God's reward system is not based on merit but on grace. And grace always gives far more than someone has earned. Now that leads to the story because it leads right to the opening words where he says the kingdom of heaven is like. That tells us there's a parable coming. He's going to give an analogy. He's saying in the kingdom of heaven the operative principle is not merit, it is grace. 
Now here's the parable. Let me just retell it to you. We just read it, but in case that was too fast. Here's the owner of a sizable vineyard, and he's going to harvest his grapes on a particular day. Now all the servants who work for him throughout the year, they go out into the vineyard at 6 o'clock in the morning. While they go out, the owner visits the local marketplace at the crack of dawn because he needs more workers. And so he, he goes and he looks for people who are willing to do one day's work for a reasonable sum of a denarius. Apparently, from what I read, that's equal to a day's work. Um, already at the same hour, between 5 and 6 a.m., there are already some men, able-bodied men available for work. They're waiting for someone to come around and, and provide work for them. And so he goes up, he talks to these men, he mentions how much he'll pay, they agree to come and to work for this 10-hour workday. That's what it would boil down to. So while they are busy, while the original servants and then these he has hired are busy at work in the vineyard, obviously he determines we're going to need more workers, so he goes back to the work, uh, marketplace. It's now between 8 and 9 o'clock in the morning, and now there are other workmen that are there, available. He hires them, and he promises them a fair wage, and they then go and begin working. He, does, he goes back at noon, and then he goes back again at 3 o'clock, and he goes back again at 5 in the afternoon. And the same arrangement, same, same offer. At the end of the day, the workers all line up to be paid. And he begins with those who are hired last, the 5 p.m. workers. He pays them a denarius. Uh, then those 3 o'clock, pays them the same, all the way down to those who started at dawn. And... Uh, They've been in the sun all day, and they are thinking this is not fair. And they begin to grumble against the landowner and basically saying, and rightfully so, we worked hard all day. We've been sweating out there in the heat. You give these guys that showed up for the last hour or two, you give them the same thing or you pay them the same thing you're going to pay us. The landowner doesn't seem offended. He doesn't get angry, but he speaks to one of the laborers, Obviously, we assume the spokesman for the group, uh, and he calls him friend. He said, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for that amount of money? And so the man's accusation of the landowner being unfair is nothing more than a cover for envy and greed. That, that's what the root of this is. The man's envious that, that he worked that much longer, or they worked longer than these others, and yet they get the same amount of money. Uh, but the question is saying, look, no one's been, a, been treated unfairly here. You weren't promised something you did not get. And then the landowner makes everything clear by asking this last question, or are you envious because I am generous? Okay, that's the parable. That's it. So what are some lessons from this? We learn here that God is a generous God. Over and over, the Bible tells us how generous God is. We tend to think of generous people as being very giving. They're looking for needs. They're willing to meet needs. They're not stingy. We tend to know what all those things mean. They're not self-centered. They, they truly care. Hopefully, they're wise in their generosity. The Bible tells us over and over from the very beginning of how generous God is. Think back to the Garden of Eden, even the creation. Uh, his generous generosity even before sin enters the garden. The scriptures say that the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, 
trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Now, that just wasn't the, the forbidden fruit on the, on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know that was true about it, uh, that it was pleasing to the eye. But you think about it. I, I was thinking about this as I did the preparation. I like bananas. I'll eat a banana every afternoon when I get home. And I think bananas, I like the yellow color. And then when they turn black, you know how unappealing they are. Or oranges or apples, the array of colors. Uh, these grapes we, we had today. Just God could have made all food just to be a gray, a hazy gray color. Think how unappetizing that would be. That's part of the generosity of God, the visual creativity. When it says pleasing to the eye, why did God do that? That's part of his, because he is generous, you get the point. Um, marriage, still at the creation. God sees Adam, says it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God knew that Adam needed a companion. Did Adam come and ask? No, but God met his need. Why? Because it's God's disposition to be generous. What happens after they sin? Well, God deals sternly, but still with mercy and with grace. Uh, Genesis 3 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So right in the midst of fulfilling his role as judge, God generously meets their need for clothes. What were the causes of God's generous and gracious deeds to Adam and Eve? Was it because they asked? Was it because he saw they were still well-intentioned? Was it their merits? No. God was gracious and generous because it is part of his eternal nature to be so. So do you realize and recognize and think about each day the generosity of God? The Bible tells us also that God delights to do good. Here's a promise from the book of Jeremiah. And I, this, I'm going to give you a lot of words, but see if you can just follow along a little bit. I don't want you to turn there. But here's what God says. They will be my people. I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action. So they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will, listen to this last sentence, I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. What kind words. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. These must have been wonderful people. These must have been people that God had looked at and said, my, these are worthy people filled with merit. No, this is a people that he had just described uh, who were described as those who, quote, have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. These were the people in captivity in Babylon because of their sins committed over many generations. If anyone is, is disqualified from receiving God's mercy and grace, it should have been that group. And yet, what do we have? God promises to prosper them and to rejoice in doing so. Why? Because God is a generous God, and he gives grace. I don't know who said it. I wrote it down. Grace is no longer grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human demerit. Let me read it again. Grace is no longer grace 
if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human demerit. Do you ever think you've blown it? Do you ever think that God just can't forgive this? You just don't understand. I talked to a a person very recently who gave me a litany of things they just live with regret and feelings of disappointment to others. And all I could say was, that is the voice of the devil. I know this person well. I said, when the Bible says that Satan is an accuser, you are giving me one accusation after another that is groundless, that is baseless. God delights to do good. Let me move on. God delights to show grace. Think about Peter. Peter, when he wrote 1 Peter in chapter 5, he refers to God as the God of all grace. The God of all grace. I think it's important to realize that the Bible's inspired, but God did use human personalities to record the scriptures. And so that personality is important. Even like when Peter's writings, we should know what was Peter like. Well, if anyone understood God being the God of grace, it was Peter. He had a history of mistakes and failures from walking on the water and beginning to sink to to Jesus rebuking him by saying, get behind me, Satan, for denying Jesus three times. But who does God select to be the primary spokesman uh, for the apostles on the day of Pentecost? It's Peter. Who had the privilege of preaching that first sermon when 3,000-plus people were converted? It's Peter. It's Peter who could not seem to do anything or say anything right during the ministry of Christ. And yet, it was Peter at the house of Cornelius that God used Had Peter changed? Had he become perfect? Now did he merit grace? No. He's the recipient of God's grace. That's what one Linsky, the Bible commentator, referred to this phrase when he says the God of all grace as superabounding grace. God delights to show grace. Now, let me go on. God has a right to show grace. And that's where the parable is leading us. Who are you to make a decision like this to reward these people with the same pay that we got. God has a right to show grace. You and I can never obligate God. God is debtor to no one. Do you have debts? I don't necessarily mean financial. Maybe you've got those two. Maybe you've got a mortgage. Maybe you've got a car payment or something like that. But maybe you have debts of gratitude, and you think, oh, you know, I owe a thank you note to that person. Or I've never expressed appreciation to this person like I should have. Or or this person did something for me, and I'm waiting for the opportunity I can pay it back. So in, in that sense, you and I live with debts. Uh, and we probably uh, are indebted to other people. God is no one's debtor. No one's debtor. When he in Matthew 6 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, that is a promise, but it does not put God in your debt. You cannot say, You said this, now you need to pay up. You are indebted to me with these promises in the Bible. There's nothing we can do to place God in our debt. I hope you're a good driver. I hope you obey the traffic laws and the speed laws and so forth. I hope you drive in the proper lane. I hope you don't pass on the right. I hope you don't pass on the solid line. Even the white one, right? (laughs) Now that one's tough. I hope you come to a complete stop at stop signs. I hope you use your turn signals and remember to turn them off, folks. Okay, you know. I disturbed me the other day. I looked and I was driving down the road and my blinker was on. Oh, man, you know. 
I'm 55. I made me feel like I was 75, you know, right then. My blinker was on and I wasn't turning. That's my point. You got, you understood it. <laughs> if you do obey all the traffic laws, do you really expect that on the last day of December you will get a check in the mail from Georgia, the state of governor, rewarding you for having been such a good driver? Is the law indebted to you when you've obeyed it? No. You've only done what you were supposed to do. You don't obligate the state to reward your behavior when you obey the law. As the sovereign ruler of the universe, God has the right to require perfect obedience to his revealed will and faithful service from you and from me. We owe him such obedience, but even if we did it perfectly, we would have to say with the Apostle Paul, I've only done my duty. So we cannot obligate God in any way. That's why he said to Job in Job 41, Who has a claim against me that I must pay it? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Now that is very opposed to the attitude that says, I am not getting what I deserve. And that's what these workers had, at least the ones at the end of the line. That's the entitlement attitude. We're, we're riddled with it in our land and in our churches. Our culture, we feel we're entitled to certain benefits from the government. Uh, we feel we're entitled to certain things. Younger adults feel entitled to enjoy certain standards of living, which took their parents or grandparents decades to achieve. That attitude will kill you in the church. I mean, in, in your walk with Christ, the entitlement attitude will just do a number on your faith. When Jim Baker went to prison, I like this group, you know, y'all understand my turn signal things, but you also know who Jim Baker is. Y'all ever seen the Blues Brothers? How many of y'all have seen the Blues Brothers? Oh, thank you. I get with people in our church that are less than 30 years old, and I'll refer to a scene that I thought was funny from the Blues Brothers. You know, like when the mother superior swats those guys and they fall down the steps in their desk. You know what I'm talking about? They don't have a clue as to what I'm talking about. One of them, they said, you know, my dad saw that movie, but I never saw it. <laughs> All right, y'all know who Jim Baker is. He wrote a book that I've got. It was a uh, biography of sorts after he went to prison called I Was Wrong. And if you know the... Back when Jim Baker was on TV, he and his, his wife, who's, who's died since then, said uh, he had embraced and espoused a gospel that's, that we call the prosperity gospel. And here's what he wrote about that. He said, for years I had embraced a gospel that some skeptics had branded as a prosperity gospel. I didn't mind the label. On the contrary, I was proud of it. He would say, you're absolutely right. I said that to critics and friends alike. I preach it and live it. I believe God wants to bless his people. Look at all the rich saints in the Old Testament. And the New Testament clearly says that above all, God wants us to prosper even as our souls prosper. I even got to the point where I was teaching people, don't pray God will, your will be done when you're praying for health and wealth. You already know it's God's will for you to be healthy. But when I began to study the scriptures in depth while I was in prison, I was very distressed at what I discovered. The more I studied the Bible, I had to admit that the prosperity message did not line up with the tenor of scripture. My heart was crushed to think I led so many people astray. 
I just looked down and I saw I'm out of time. Um, let me give you a couple of words of conclusion. The point of the parable, God is saying he has a right to dispense his blessings as he chooses. That's it. God is saying, the landowner says, don't I have a right to do with what I want with my own money? In Romans, he says, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common purposes? Basically, there's this. There is no place to complain about the generosity of God because he's been generous to all of us. So I'd urge you to thank him for his generosity through Christ. Thanks for his generosity in the gospel of our redemption through Christ. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are generous to us. We thank you that you are not our debtor, uh, but that we are debtors to you for all you've done for us. Thank you for Christ, our Redeemer, that through him we can know you. Our sins are forgiven. Through faith in him, may our trust be in him and him only. In his name we pray. Amen.